grab your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We'll pick up where we left off last week. As you're turning there, there is an expression that I have heard in recent days, maybe recent years. It goes like this. You had one job to do, or you had just one thing to do. And the expression reflects on a simple yet essential task that is left undone. So it could be like this. Uh, A wife goes to her husband and says, hey, we are out of milk. Could you go down to the store and get us some milk? And with a heart to serve his wife and family, the husband gets in his car and he, he drives down. And while he is driving, he's thinking about him going to the store. There's a whole bunch of other things that we need to get as well. So he gets himself a toothbrush and some socks and some deodorant. And and he comes back to his wife. He goes through the front door with an assortment of all these things. And the wife says, that's all good, but did you get milk? And he says, I forgot the milk. And she says, you had one job to do. And you didn't do it. Or maybe a family is getting ready to go on a vacation. And they've got an empty gas tank. And so one of them says, hey, can you go down and fill up the tank so we can get a, an efficient drive to our destination? So the person goes down and fills up the gas tank but forgets the gas cap. And so now they're making their way down the highway and the check engine light comes on. And they realize that light's going to be on for the rest of this trip. And one turns to the other and says, You had one job to do. Just put some gas in the tank. And this expression works really good in sports, where maybe there's a golfer who has hit the shot of their lives on one that approaches the green and puts the ball within six inches of the hole. And all they got to do is tap it in there to make birdie. And they don't do it. They had one job to do, and they didn't do it. Or if you like basketball, you're rooting for a whole two hours, and you're watching this game. And near the end, as the the, the, the end weighs in the balance, there is your team with a seven-foot guy reaching up. All he needs to do is make a layup, and your team will win. He has one job to do, and he can't do it. Or if you're watching your favorite football team, And your team drives down at the end of the game and there's three seconds left. They call a timeout. And all the kicker needs to do is kick a 37-yard field goal. And your team will win. And he pushes it wide left. And we say, the guy had one job to do. Well, in the church, in our faith, if Jesus were to come to us and say, I got one job for you to do, what would it be? Well, the answer to that is found in five different places in the New Testament. We in the church refer to it as the Great Commission. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command. And Behold, I will be with you. Or in Mark 16, the same expression where Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Or Luke 24, repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Or John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Or just two weeks ago when we started the book of Acts, we read Acts 1, verse 8, 
where Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It is with a teachable spirit that I approach this book of Acts, eager to learn how is it that they carried out this one job that they were left with. How is it that they made disciples? And I think you and I both come to the book of Acts realizing that this is not a perfect church, nor is there a perfect church. We'll find out in just a matter of weeks, if the Lord wills, that there is some hypocrisy going on in this early church. We'll also find out several weeks later that there are some doctrinal errors that need to be corrected within this church. But nonetheless, the passage, the six verses that we get to cover this morning, I think provide a portrait of how the early church carried out making disciples. So can we look upon Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through the end of the chapter, that is to 47. Let's read this, follow along as I read it. From the English Standard Version, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all these things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having found favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Would you pray with me? And may God add clarity how it is that we are to carry out this one job of making disciples. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing that as we navigate through our Christian lives, as a church, as we have respect for the authoritative Word of God, You have not just asked us to do something without providing some instructions on how to carry it out. Last week, we learned that the Holy Spirit came. And as a result, the the word was preached. And there were 3,000 people that became followers of Jesus. We understand that the church is not made of just converts, but of disciples. And So as we look at this passage this morning, may we understand and, and find our place In this process of how these disciples, these new converts were matured in the faith. And if there are gaps in our own lives, would you bring conviction? Would you stir in our hearts and empower us to be about this one job of making disciples? In Jesus' name, Amen. I think a really important word by way of introduction, and my translation is the third word, it says this, and they devoted, they devoted themselves. In these four different ways that we're going to be talking about this morning and how they made disciples, a really important word for us is this word devoted. 
It speaks about one who is earnest towards, one who perseveres, constantly diligent, steadfast, faithful, and maybe even a swear word in our culture today, committed. These four really tasks, these four different ways of which these early Christians were making disciples are all done under this umbrella. They were devoted to these four things. They put these things into practice faithfully. So what are those four? Let us consider the first one. If you have your outline, you can fill the blanks in. The first one, the way they made disciples was through teaching. You see it here in chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. One commentator, John Stott, stated the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem. And the apostles were the teachers. Just a moment ago, we read the Great Commission. Where it says... Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember the next part? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The teaching word here in the Greek, you see it in your handout, is the word didache. It means doctrine or instruction. The word here, as we look at verse 42, this teaching came from the apostles. Who are these apostles? What makes an apostle? Chapter 1 of Acts, verses 21 through 22, define that for us. When they were looking to identify another apostle, this was the criteria. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day in which he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So this was the criteria. One that who had been with Jesus from the very beginning, even back to John the Baptist, all the way up to his death and his resurrection. And they were identified as a follower, as an apostle. Well, these apostles were ones who were bringing teaching to these 3,000 men and women who were just recently became Christians. What do you think they taught? Well, clearly it was about Jesus. It was about who he was, his identity. Likely it was about his, the miracles that he performed, as well as the very teachings that he offered. As they unpacked this faith, they would have identified that Jesus is God. Jesus once said in John 10:30, I and the Father are one. In John 8, verse 58, he said, Before Abraham was born, I am. After he raised from the dead, one of his disciples named Thomas said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus never rebuked him. So Jesus' identity is God, but he is also fully man. We see Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, but he never sinned. The teaching would have been on the identity of Jesus, likely would have also included the miracles of Jesus, that he healed lepers, a paralyzed, the man with a withered ham, the centurion's son. He raised people from the dead. He, he calms a storm. He feeds 5,000. He casts out demons. And the most amazing miracle of all is he forgives sins. 
These were all signs that pointed that he is the Messiah. He is the fulfilled one that we read about in the Old Testament. This teaching would have included the identity of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, but also the teachings of Jesus. Whether it was love your enemies, whether it was you will be known by your fruits, whether redefining greatness to say really true greatness is in serving others, or whether it was by reviewing some of the stories or the parables he told. Do you remember when he shared a parable of the kingdom of God being like a wedding feast? That this invitation, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, extends to all. Whether you are a religious person or whether you are a prostitute or tax collector, an invitation is extended to you to become a follower of Jesus. There's another parable that he told in in another writing of Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, of the parable of the loving father. This is a parable that on Wednesday nights we're spending about six weeks studying. There's this father that has two sons. There is a young son. A young son that decides to to choose the path of self-exploration. And and really the language of our day, the language of our culture. He says, I want to find happiness and fulfillment in getting everything that I desire and fulfilling all of my sinful and selfish appetites. And he does that only to run up into a dead end. And he decides to come back to his father hoping to be a servant. But the love of the father is displayed as he runs off to them and he restores his relationship. But there is also another brother, another son. He is the older one. And he chooses a different path, the path of moral conformity, where he is a a rule follower. And he follows his father's rules. Yet we find out in his self-righteousness that he is just as lost as his little brother. This parable speaks to us about those who who go off on their own ways, they are lost, and those who are like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious people in Jesus' days, who are leaning on their own self-righteousness, they too are lost. And so Jesus would share stories of how forgiveness is offered through the Son. He also would share another story, likely that it would have been repeated here in the early teachings of the early church, of which he offered a parable that says, if you, if you are about ready to build a tower, and across the street there's a, a tower being built, if you were being ready to build a tower, you would think through that. You would count the cost. You would make sure you would have enough materials and money and resources to build that. Or if you were to go off to a war, you would make sure that you would have all the equipment, all the soldiers getting ready to go off to that war. You would count the cost. In the same way, if you want to be a follower of mine, you too must count the cost. So the first thing we see here in those who are being made into disciples is there is an emphasis on the word of God. James Montgomery Boyce said it this way, the spirit-filled church is a Bible-studying church. This church here who had this magnificent, this miraculous experience just last week as we were in the first part of Acts chapter 2 did not rely on this spiritual experience. Instead, they went back to the Word of God. Do you remember what 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 2 says? 
Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that it may that by it you may grow up into your salvation. And the days that our boys were born, I can remember being in the hospital, and I can remember there would be an urgency by the doctors and nurses to take that newborn babe and have it quickly to drink milk, to learn how to do that. In the same way, there are these baby Christians now in this early church. And what do the disciples, the apostles do? They quickly, they quickly get the word of God in their minds and in their hearts, just as a little baby would have milk from his mother. There is this emphasis that we see here. You'll notice that these apostles, according to chapter 2, verse 43, they performed wonders and signs. It's the same language that we see of Jesus. Jesus performed wonders and signs to authenticate his deity. We might say the apostles performed these wonders and signs to authenticate that they were coming from Jesus. The spirit-filled life leads to a word-filled life. That's what we see here in the first part of how they made disciples. An emphasis on teaching the word of God. The second piece that we see here on how they did this one job and how they did this one job well was an emphasis on fellowship. Look with me again at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. What is this word fellowship? You see it there in your handout. It is a Greek word named Koinonia. It means partnership, participation, cooperation, together, sharing. You'll see it says the fellowship there in verse 42. True Christian fellowship is really defined in 1 John 1 verse 3. Let me just read an excerpt of that. It says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And here's the point of Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship is one, a person having a fellowship with Jesus that relates to their fellowship with another person. Another way of saying it, true Christian fellowship as one having a close relationship with Jesus that affects close relationship with others who are Christians as well. A number of years ago, I used to spend my noon hour at the YMCA in Howard. And I'd play basketball. And between games one time, as was my custom, really, I would try to get into a conversation and and visit with people and get to know where they were and, and try to build a relationship with them. One day as I was visiting, I was talking to a person on my left, and I asked him where he was from, and he said, Reedsburg. I said, oh, well, I I have some early years of my life were in Reedsburg. In fact, I still have some family there. In fact, I have a a brother, a stepbrother that lives there. And this young man says, well, what's your stepbrother's name? And I said, well, it's Seth. What's your last name? And I said, well, and I offered him my last name, and he looked at me, and he said, Seth is my best friend. And he he pulled out his phone, and he, he... showed me a text where he had just texted him that morning. And here he is playing basketball with his brother. And do you know what happened? 
This at one time was a stranger of mine, but suddenly, because of a mutual relationship, now we had all sorts of things in common. And I knew a lot about this guy who was a stranger just five minutes ago. And so suddenly we had my brother in common. And we had a connection with one another. Have you ever experienced that? Where if you are a Christian, you are walking and growing in the Lord, and you meet a stranger who they too are a Christian, and all of a sudden, even though you've never met them before, you have fellowship. You have a relationship with them. So here is the emphasis of this early church. We're going to focus on teaching, doctrine. But the bridge of that is going to be by close relationships. So we see this fellowship demonstrated in two different ways. The first is time. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 44. It says here, And all who believed were together. They were together. They spent their time. In fact, we could read a little bit further. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. These new believers emphasized friendship and relationship with one another. And they devoted themselves to going to the temple for worship. But they also expressed this by devoting themselves by hanging out together in people's homes, even in eating with one another. That's what these relationships were built on, on the teaching that they had received. Now, probably all of us know what it's like to come to a gathering, a spontaneous one of which we just can't get enough of, and we also can know what it's like to go to a gathering where it just feels very forced. I can think of in my own family's background and my mom's side, there was the golden years of, of these gatherings and with people, all of her siblings would come together and there would be this grand meal provided and there would be laughter and there would be uh, people playing board games or playing cards and it was as if time stood still and they would reminisce and you just couldn't get enough of it. And before too long, the blankets would be brought out and the pillows and people would just spend the night and, and sleep on the couch. But over the years, that experience gave way to another one where it felt absolutely forced. Like it's, okay, it's Christmas Eve or it's, it's Resurrection Day. Okay, we gotta, we gotta put our time in and let's get this thing over with. So at least we said we did it. Well, church can be like that, can it not? The early church was one in which they just could not get enough of being with one another. And there were some intentional friendships that were formed under the teaching of the, the, the church. And if we're not careful, over the years, it can be like, let's just put my time in. Let me just get through this class. Let me just get through this service. How did they do this one job? How did they do this discipleship? It was through teaching. It was through fellowship. I said that fellowship was expressed not only in time, but the second thing we see it was also by sharing, sharing possessions. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 44. They had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. There was a shared responsibility. If I have something, you can use it. We're all in this together. 
So give me a third. Let me give you a third way in which they discipled people in the early church. The first was through teaching. The second was through close relationships. And the third was through worship. We see it again back up in chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking and bread. Exactly what is that? There's been a lot of debate over this over the years. Is breaking the bread eating meals together? I believe so. But is that all that it means? Many would conclude that this is actually the Lord's Supper. They would eat a meal, yes, but they would conclude that meal by remembering what Jesus did on the cross for them. So how did they make disciples? They emphasized teaching. Sound words, clear doctrines. They did it through close relationships and and friendships. And all of those were centered around the cross, the gospel. And you see also it says, and the prayers at the end of verse 42. This is all under the umbrella of worship. And so they might hear what Jesus did on the cross for them. They died for their sins. And that might just arouse within them a prayer of gratitude. Thank you for doing this. There might also be this teaching that says, now it is your responsibility to go out and and share this truth with others. And there could be some fear where they would say, oh God, help me, open a door for me to do that. Or there might be a teaching that says, now your chains are gone. Now you can live in Christ and be free from your sins and say, oh God, help me to apply that in my life. So there was this prayer, prayer prayer-filled life that also marked the early Christians. There was a formal and informal practice of worship in the early church. There was not only this gathering in the temple, likely in the outer courts, where there was a large room for them to come and hear the teaching, but they would also go to people's homes. And this would be a good spot, I suppose, just to remind you that what I am urging you to do is yes, come and and gather in a large Sunday morning gathering. But don't end there. We're, We're placing an emphasis on you to get into a smaller gathering as well. Whether it's a Sunday school class that meets at 9 o'clock or two weeks from today, there's going to be three different studies that are going to start in homes where we can put into practice what we see right here in Acts chapter 2 where we get together and we get to know one another. Part of that home study is that the instructor or the facilitator is only supposed to speak about 40% of the time. It's really intended on you getting to know each other and have some intimate, close friendships with each other. And if you're interested in that, I urge you to consider these words right here and say, am I putting this into practice? And there's certainly sign-up sheets to get started on those studies that begin in two weeks. There is this informal and formal. You'll see that there is an awe that comes over the these new Christians, but there is also this generous joy that comes over them. Look with me at verse 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul. There was this awe of being a part of what God was doing. But then when you look at verse 46, it says, 
and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts. So this church was known for being awe in awe of God, but also being glad and joyful in their countenance. So here you have it. How is the early church carrying out this one job that they are given? They're doing it by teaching. They're doing it by emphasizing close relationships. They're doing it through worship, an emphasis on on God and and praising Him at the temple and praying and and remembering the Lord's Supper. And, And are they doing this at the expense of outreach? No. The fourth element we see here is evangelism. Look with me at verse 47. The last part of verse 47 says, And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The Lord did not add to them without saving them. He had saved them of their sins. He had saved them from the wrath of God. And as a result, now they are being added to the local church. Who is it who added to the church each day? The Lord did. This was not based on man's clever methods. It was a work of God. And so we see this healthy, spirit-filled church growing inward and outward. These new Christians grew in their understanding and practice of essential doctrines. These truths were communicated through deep friendships. Presumably prayers were offered and answered. And all the while, this good news was being shared. So how did the early church carry out this one job? One commentator, Ken Hughes, put it this way. When the Spirit reigns, the Spirit is reigning in this church. When the Spirit reigns, believers relate to the world. I'm sorry, believers relate to the Word in teaching. When the Spirit reigns, believers relate to each other in fellowship. And when the Spirit reigns, believers relate to God in worship. And when the Spirit reigns, believers relate to the world in evangelism. Are you hearing this common theme of relationship? As I've reflected on these six verses, I've thought back to my own experience, and it's not much different. When I became a Christian, I was in my early 20s in a, in a state school here in Wisconsin. I really didn't know many people who were Christians. And one day, near the campus, I stumbled on this old church. It was called the Church of the Nazarene. That was the name of the denomination. And as I walked into the doors, it was filled with predominantly people who were in their 70s and 80s. And I didn't look around and see people my age. I didn't even know something about a consumer mentality. It was just like, God has done a work in my heart, and I want to be around other Christians. And there was a pastor who came up and approached me. His name was Ron Van Wy. He, he had worked in the concrete industry, and you could tell by his physique. He had broad shoulders and big chest, working man's hands, and he held his hand out to me, and he invited me to the small little church. And each Sunday morning, this man would get up and he would preach passionately. He would take his jacket off and he'd have a handkerchief and he would sweat. And there were mornings where he would literally get up on the the front row like this and he would just preach to people. (laughs) 
And it was amazing. I had never seen anything like it. There were Sunday mornings that I woke up, maybe like you, and I'd be like, I'm not sure I want to go to church, but I wanted to see the crazy man preach. (laughs) And boy, did he preach. And he shared the gospel over and over and over again. And there would be days where I'd be lonely and feeling isolated in my faith, and I'd walk along, and I'd just hope that as I'd pass by his house, there would be lights on. And I'd go and I'd knock on the door. And there would be Ron and his, uh, his wife, Carita. And, and they would welcome me in. And they would just stop everything they do. And they'd invite me into their home. And they would share truths with me. And I, they'd answer my questions. And then he would go into the refrigerator. And he would raid that refrigerator with any food that he could. And I would leave there with arm loads of food. When you're in college, that's a big deal, isn't it? And then I would go home. And, and I was, as I'm reflecting on this passage this week, that's exactly what Ron Van Wye was doing for me. He was, he was sharing the gospel. He was teaching it with me. He was inviting me into his home. He was an example to me of prayer. I'd pray with him. And then he was an evangelist. He, he literally would go from church to church from time to time and preach on the gospel message. And I've reflected on that. And I thought, that's the seed that was planted in my life, and it's a seed I want to plant in other people's lives. So church family, here's what I have for you this morning. How are you doing with that one job? He got one job to do. He's left with us. This great commission where we're supposed to go out and make disciples. As I ask, as we look over this passage, would you say that there's evidence of people teaching into your life? And are you currently right now Teaching other people. Are you doing that in the context of a close relationship where you're really emphasizing that, getting to know them, breaking bread with them? Are you praying with them and their concerns? As you're doing that, are you looking for opportunities to share the gospel with others? Can we improve upon this portrait of discipleship that we see here in these six verses? Maybe why it was so effective was because it was so simple. Let us just go back and let us review this as a church family. Let's not make this complicated. Let's take the clear teachings of Jesus. Let's work on our relationships with others. Let's allow that relationship to be a bridge where we can take those truths of Jesus and and deposit them into people's lives. And let's do this with a reverence of God, a gladness in our heart, and also a fear of the Lord. And let us see, as we scatter the seeds of the gospel seed, what he may do with that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. I think a a picture has been presented to us this morning. And I pray that as clear as the passage is, I pray that it has been communicated that clearly today. And oh, how I pray against just information being shared and maybe just um, casual head nods that you would not allow us to, to, to have that. But if there's evidence here of us not participating in this, not meeting in the, in the smaller gathering, I'm not, not for my sake, but I pray that you would you would do a work. You would have us say, this is important. I need to be about relationships, Christian relationships where I'm encouraging others to walk in the ways of Jesus.
Oh, Lord, help us to be a church that doesn't make it too complicated. Where we are doing just these things and we're being devoted to them. It is through Christ I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.